All right, I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter, and then we'll come back and, and we'll review it. Acts chapter 3 says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, <clears throat> lame, from his mother's womb was carried, whom they had laid at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who enter the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his, his eyes on, the, on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked, entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets, since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in all your seed, notice that seed, singular, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Interesting passage that's set before us. Um, 
You know, I was thinking about this passage, and I can't help but to think that when I look at the scope of this passage, it's about Jesus, about who he is, and having faith in his name, the person of Christ. And it's important to note from chapter 2 how his disciples back then were empowered by the Holy Spirit, that this is the first recorded healing by two of his disciples, Peter and John. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. Peter preaches to the multitudes in Jerusalem. And 3,000 people accept the Lord. Now, the last time we saw these two paired uh, together, they were running to an empty tomb. Peter was the older of the two. He was more the, the impulsive one. And, and John is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Right? We know that about John. As we get older, I've, I've shared with you before, he went church to church. And the one thing he, he kept reiterating, love one another he is known as the disciple of love and and here they are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer now we don't know how much time had transpired between chapter 2 and chapter 3 evidently peter and john still go up to the temple during the time of prayer and we're not sure if they go to the temple during the time of sacrifice since jesus was the fulfillment of that of that sacrifice so I can imagine these guys are going up and they're picking and choosing when they go up. Uh, and notice what time they go. It's the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. There are three hours of prayer. Uh, it was uh, nine in the morning, 12 noon, and three in the afternoon. And the Jewish day began at six in the morning. So this would make it three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, some have questioned, why? Why do the disciples even go to the temple anymore? especially since they related to God differently than the way the Jews did. Well, I believe the reason they continued to go to the temple is they were fulfilling God's mandate to minister to the gospel or the gospel first to the Jews in Jerusalem. And Jesus told them that their ministry was to bear witness of him and it would start in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria. We're told in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the world, excuse me, to the end of the earth. That was the order. So the first stop to minister the gospel was Jerusalem, but more specifically in the biggest fishing hole in Jerusalem, which was the temple. Now, depending which source you cite, the temple at any given time could accommodate to 150 to 200,000 people. I just saw a picture of, uh, of obviously a Muslim celebrating Ramadan. And they say there was over 250,000 people in the Temple Mount. Some of you had just gone to uh, Israel. And I'm sure in your mind's eye you could see the Temple Mount. You imagine 250,000 people camped out there. Notice here. In verse 2, it says here, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Interesting to know, because in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, uh, 22, it tells that this man was over 40 years old. He was born, he's always been lame. He was born lame from his mother's womb. He had a congenital condition, which left his legs 
specifically his ankles without ability to walk or support himself. He was born this way. Now, I'm sure you guys have seen this. If you've traveled anywhere and you go to impoverished areas or people that we see laying around begging, we see their, their limbs distorted or atrophied. This man was no different. He was born this way. And apparently some folks cared for him enough that they would lay him at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. The gate, again, which is called beautiful, Josephus tells us, was 45 cubits tall by 40 cubits wide. Well, what does that mean to us? Well, uh, in the West here, if we were to measure it, it would be 67 feet high by 60 feet wide. Pretty massive. 67 feet high. It was uh, made out of Corinthian brass inlaid with gold and silver. We're told that it was ornate and beautiful. We're also told um, because it was so ornate and so detailed, it was more valuable than the other gates. Didn't matter if the other gates were solid gold or silver. This was so ornate that it had more value than those other gates. The gate would have been facing towards the east, toward the Mount of Olives. And apparently, being a cripple, you weren't allowed into the temple. You were only allowed as far as into the court of the Gentiles. And here he is, placed in front of the gate, begging for alms. Now listen, if you were a beggar, what better place than be placed in front of a house of worship? Think about it. With all those people who come in day in, day out, three times a day for prayer, where do you think the best place is to beg? Right before someone goes into the house of worship. You're hoping that somehow you can move the hearts of people to garner their sympathies. And, and he's there. And he's been doing this for a long time. And I'm sure he knows how to, how to work the crowds. He knows how to work the people. You know, there's a couple of beggars here we see in Pasadena. We drive by them all the time. And, and you pull up. They already know who you are. They know that they're not going to get any money from you. They don't even spend time with you, right? They just kind of they look at you and they go, they go to somebody else, right? And that's what, you know, he knows what he's doing. And he spots Peter and John about to enter through the gate. And he asks them for alms. Now, again, if he's been there even for half his life, I don't doubt that he had seen Jesus enter through these same gates. He had probably seen him go back and forth, back and forth on numerous occasions. He's probably heard Jesus teach and argue and confront the Pharisees. I think he may have witnessed the miraculous that Jesus did. He probably knew some of the people he healed. Maybe he tried to get closer, but his condition wouldn't allow him to. Maybe he saw all the people who were touched by Jesus. And that one day, maybe one day, that he too would possibly be touched by Jesus. But that day never came because he saw, or at least he witnessed the crucifixion. The days of hope and the miraculous were over. And the people were back to being religious, going to temple. And at least, he figured, at least I can draw some benefit and get something out of this. And in verse 4 it says, And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. 
Notice, this lame man is solely focused. At this time in his life, he's just focused on begging for alms. He's, he's, and he's begging indiscriminately. And he's there saying, alms, alms. You know, what do you say? Here, we just have guys with signs and they have a cup. He, he's, you know, and to the Jewish mind, it was okay to beg. There was nothing wrong. You could beg. And here he is, he's begging alms. And he sees Peter and he asks him for alms. And immediately... He's looking at the next person, you know, to, he's like, well, he's, he's not giving me anything. So he said, okay, he just moves on. All right. That's what the image is here. He's, he's asking for alms. He's Peter and Peter just kind of, you know, stands there and he looks for the next person. He's not getting any action. So he looks away. But for some reason, Peter stops. And I believe it's at this moment that God begins to speak to him. And he tells him what to do. It's my opinion, obviously. I mean, we don't see that in the scripture, but he stops. There must be a reason why he stops. And because he's looking for his next customer, Peter has to get his attention. Why? Because it tells us in verse 5, because he was expecting to receive something from them, and he didn't, at least not immediately. I could just see Peter and John saying, Hey, look at us. Silver and gold I don't have. I don't have any money, but what I do have I'm going to give you right now. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. In other words, we don't have money, but let me give you what I have. How important is that for us as believers? You know, I'm going to share this in a few moments, but it's the easy thing is to give somebody money. You ever been challenged in this area? You know what? Maybe it's just easier to just give them something, just go on my day. That's the easy thing to do. And what a challenge it is for us today as believers. Do we believe Jesus can do this today? Do we believe Jesus can work healings through you when you visit someone in the hospital who's gravely ill? Do you believe that Jesus can touch a a child who's got cancer, who's been ravaged with cancer, through you? Or is that reserved for somebody else? Do you believe that? If you're a child of God, you should believe that. You say, but I don't have that gift. I don't know too many people that do. But I do know this, that if God is speaking to my heart, he expects me to get up and exercise the faith that he's given me to do it. And this is the challenge for all of us because it goes, or rather it ventures into the area of the unknown for, unknown for us, isn't it? It's an area that we just don't want to venture in at times because we're afraid We're afraid that we'll louse it up. We're afraid we'll mess it up. Does God want me to make a move? Does God really want me to do this? And he challenges us to move. And if if he does, he expects you to do it for his glory. Again, I'm I'm afraid that some of us here would prefer silver and gold rather than extend our, our hand out in faith. He says here... What I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. He lifted him up. The lame man didn't just get up. Peter had to lift him up. I can imagine this guy said, what do you mean get up? I'm not going to get... Look, I've been like this for over 40 years. Peter grabs him by the right hand and he lifts him up. Later in in verse uh, 16... Peter tells the crowd that it's through his name and faith in his name that this man was made strong. 
It had nothing to do with the lame man's faith. And that's important for us to know that. It wasn't incumbent upon the lame man. He just told him to get up. It had everything to do with faith in the person of Jesus Christ. He wasn't told, hey, believe in the name of Jesus Christ and get up and walk. Or, hey, brother, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Oh, if you do, then get up and walk. He doesn't tell him that. He just tells him, get up, rise up. Let me give you what I got. I got Christ. He lifts him up. And I could just imagine as he's standing, and I'm sure as he's standing there for the first time, he's probably done this many times as he was growing up. Maybe one day he'd stand. But every time he did, he'd fall right back down. I'm sure at some point he goes, it's useless. These things right here will never work. And Luke here is using terms referring to his feet and ankles not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. He's using medical terms. Here's a man who's never experienced running before. He had never been on a walk. He's only been carried to location to location. And for the first time in his life, he's standing without assistance. And I'm sure he's probably had those thoughts standing at the gate there or sitting at the gate. Where's God in all this? All these people are enjoying sacrifice. They're enjoying the hour of prayer. And here I am, a beggar. I'm outside the gate. I'm outside. Where's God in all this? Where are you? He had been hearing Jesus talk, no doubt, about the kingdom. He had seen him do the miraculous. And the miraculous has now happened to him in the name of the person that was crucified a few weeks earlier. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so he, verse 8, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. As soon as he feels the apparent healing, he begins to walk and to leap and to praise God. You know, um, some of you have probably seen this. You know, we see videos on our phones or computers. But you guys see these people who who are are, uh, trying out these new hearing aids, you know, the latest technology they've never heard in their life. And you see these videos, and, and these people, you know, put on the hearing aids for the first time. They start to dial everything in, and then their, their mother or their father says the first words to their kids. They just light up, and all of a sudden you see these tears, and there's laughter. They're, they're overcome with emotion. And, then, and there's an, another video I saw recently, I think last week, where um, a high school coach, he's, he's beloved by the kids, and... Um, they want to give him a gift for his birthday. So they have this video out and, and here he is. He's kind of like, oh, guys, you didn't have to do this. And, and, and he begins to open this package. Um, and what you don't know is he's actually colorblind. And so he opens up the box and it's a set of these glasses. They look like sunglasses. And, he, and he, they're like, what are these? And they're like, they're, they're for the colorblind so you could see. And, he, and he's like, no, no way, no. And he takes these glasses, he puts them on. He looks around, and then he falls to his knees, and he begins to weep. He's just overcome with emotion. He gets up, and he's weeping, and he's laughing, and he's weeping, and he's laughing. And they go, what color is this? He goes, purple. What color is that? It's orange. And you can see he's overcome with emotion. Do you think this guy felt the same way? You get the picture? He gets up. Immediately, his ankles, his feet receive strength, and he is just boogieing, man. 
You can't believe he's never stood in his life, let alone walk and run. There are muscles and tendons firing off, which he had never felt before. And I'm sure Peter and John are not the least surprised. You know, I don't think this stuff ever gets old for them, but they're not surprised because they, they, they're not surprised about a Messiah who was crucified and resurrected. To them, this is nothing. This is nothing for them. And this was evidence of a living Christ. So here he is. We see him entering the temple, a place he wasn't allowed to go in because of his condition. And he's finally able to draw close. And what a picture again before us. There's also something else for us to consider here in verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. All the people saw him walking. All these people have gathered for the hour of prayer. And you know what the irony is for me here? Is they go to prayer because why? Because they want to see God work, don't they? We, we, we go to prayer because, not because it's, a, it's an exercise for us, an intellectual exercise. We, we go to prayer because we're hoping God will respond to our petitions. Right? And, and so these people are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And no doubt they've seen this beggar begging for alms for years. And, and for some folks, the hour of prayer was just a religious exercise. Because that's what they did. But I believe there was many people who, who went to the temple because they had sick kids. They had sick parents. They had infirm parents. And, and at this moment, their hearts are stirred and, and they want to see God work. And they go to the temple because they hear that there's a God who reigns in heaven, who hears prayers. He hears our prayers. And so there's people who go and they have a sincerity. And they want to hear God and they want to see him respond. And they're hopeful. And then they see this man leaping around. And they're going, is that Elijah? Is he, is he jumping around? That's the beggar. What's he doing? And I'm sure he's out there wailing. Can't believe he's, ecsti- he's ecstatic. They, they experience a genuine healing. Because you can't fake disjointed feet or atrophied legs. Can you? You can't fake that. And all the people saw him. You know, you ever wonder how when Jesus was walking around, he didn't heal everybody, right? When he went to the pool, I mean, there are people everywhere who were infirmed, who were diseased, or, you know, they had disabilities. He didn't heal everybody. He would, he would kind of retreat where they wouldn't find him. He didn't heal everybody. Jesus didn't heal everyone because he knew Those healings were reserved for a future moment such as this, for his glory and for the salvation of many. Secondly, because he only did those things that the Father showed him. And that's important for us to understand. He was obeying the Father. If the Lord had told him, if God had told him, I want you to heal this man, that's exactly what he did. And if there was others in the room, he wouldn't go touch them. Because he was waiting to hear from the Father. John chapter 4 verse 34 says, Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John chapter 5 verse 30 says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John chapter 6 verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He was totally dependent upon the Father. Folks, that is a great relief for me. 
Because how often do we feel like we have to move because we read something in Scripture and say, they did it. Shouldn't I be able to do it? I shouldn't have to. I need to hear from God. I need to hear from Him. Otherwise, it's me doing it. And if I do it, I'm going to fall flat on my face. I'm going to fail. You know, I asked the Lord, Lord, you know, should I go over there and raise that person up? I'm sure all of you here at some point or another have seen someone and you go, should I go pick them up? God, will you do it? Y'all been challenged that way somehow? I have. Then I go, Lord, I am praying. I don't hear anything. Does that disappoint me? No. Because I know I'm acting in faith. If the Lord doesn't reveal it to me, I'm not going to do it. But I'm always challenged. I don't want to be presumptuous. God hasn't spoken to me. He has his reasons. God doesn't heal everybody, but I'm ready. But it better be the Lord. And, and there are people God is, is going to direct your way, and maybe, just maybe, he's going to work through you for his glory. The thing is, we need to be ready. We need to be ready. Are you ready? Are you looking to be used? Are you serious about the kingdom? Are you serious about the kingdom? In verse 10, he says, Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. So the people see him walking. They see him leaping. He's praising God. He'd been a cripple for over 40 years. And he's known by the people. And says they knew it was him. Later in chapter 4, even the religious leaders couldn't deny the miracle had taken place. They, re- they knew who it was. These religious people, they, they knew all the people in the temple precinct. They were familiar. And they say, we cannot deny the miracle has taken place. What do we say? What do we do? We tell these guys, you know what? We're going to threaten them. Do no longer go out in the name of Jesus and preach and teach in his name. That's the most they can do. But they realized a genuine healing took place. They couldn't deny it. And it says they were filled with wonder and amazement. The word amazement here has this idea of the mind being displaced. This is the mind searching for answers and coming up with none. They're, they're adding up the, the equation, but they couldn't get the answer. There he is, leaping all over the court of the Gentiles, leaping up into the temple. The smoke from the evening sacrifice can be seen past the gates that go into the, uh, the temple, signifying the evening prayer is about to begin, and folks are streaming towards the temple, and as they approach, they can hear this voice leaping around the temple grounds, and they begin to recognize it's the crippled beggar. There he is. He's jumping all over the place. He's the one that was by the beautiful gate. And they're perplexed. And they're filled with wonder. What do these things mean? Jesus has been, you know, he died a few weeks earlier. All this stuff supposedly stopped. It's, it's no longer taking place. Something's going on. Then verse 11. Now is a lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John. All the people ran together to them to the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. They, they start from the front of the gate. Then they move into the temple. The people are wondering. They're, they're running. They're, they're wondering what all this commotion is about. And people, out of curiosity, they gather, they gather. The scene is swelling with the masses. And it appears the lame man, along with Peter and John, make their way towards Solomon's porch, 
away from the temple proper, and all the people are staring at a miracle. And that word that's used there for for uh, the layman holding on to Peter and John, it's used. It's a word that's used of police officers when they arrest somebody. This lame man has basically handcuffed himself to Peter and John. He will not let go. And what's interesting about this scene is, I'm sure that not only did they recognize, you know, all, they all recognize the beggar, but they also recognize Peter and John. They're like, okay, the miracles are starting all over again. And these guys, they hung out with Jesus. Something's going on. These guys were followers. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The first thing that stands out here is they're careful not to get the glory. And that's the temptation for man, to get the glory over what God has done. You know, it's funny because Xavier... um, he shared the story before, but um, uh, they're in Israel touring the Holy Land. And they're there with a couple of pastors. And, and at one point, they stop off at a location. And they're going to tour it. And um, uh, everyone's kind of coming off the bus. Not this recent trip. It was a different one, guys. Um, this was many, many years ago. And uh, this one pastor gets off the bus. And this lady comes right up. She goes, are you pastor so-and-so? And, well, why, yes. It's, it's me. How how did you hear about me? Is it through tape or was it the radio? No, it says right there on your badge. (laughs) And he just hung his head. We love the glory, don't we? And that's the temptation for man. God does a work. We think we, we somehow attach this work because of us, that God shows favor and look at me. Obviously, why not? Wouldn't God work through me? We need to be careful. God desires to work through you. But do you think he's going to work through you with that attitude? He may use you because you're going to be in places that we're not going to be. You're going to, you're going to be in places that uh, you're going to be in a sphere of people that I will never talk to. And he might just use you. But I know, I know without a doubt, he loves to use people who are humble. Who are humble. Let me prove my point. Furthermore, we could be in a crowded room. There could be over 100 people laughing. And, but the moment someone says, Fernando, you don't think I hear my name? You don't think you hear your name? Someone could be in the corner. They just mention your name. You pick it out. Among all the voices, you can hear your voice. We love the glory. And Peter and John are here and they say, why do you marvel at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk. Hey, we're not the guys. It's not us. We don't have the power to do this. Now, does God still heal today? Absolutely. Does he do it with regularity? No doubt. Do we see it on a scale that we see it in the book of Acts? No, we don't. But does he still do it? Yes, he does. He, he can do it through the laying of hands. He can do it through intercessory prayer. He still does it. He loves his people. The problem is what we see on TV. You have these hucksters who exploit the people of God, and they're in it for personal gain and fame. Be careful not to rob the, the, glo- or the glory from God. Your ministry will be more effective 
and they will reap eternal benefits. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at us? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Notice, Peter asked two questions. Why are you marveling at us? Okay? And, or why are you marveling at this? And two, why are you looking at, at us as though it's by our own power or godliness that this was done? You know what he's saying? He says, don't you remember the miracles God did in rescuing the people out of Egypt? Don't you remember how God turned the water in the Nile to blood? He brought in the locusts. He brought down the hail. He, he killed the firstborn. He parted the sea. He fed the Israelites manna in the desert. Remember that God? That's the God of the Bible. That's what we're talking about. And why are you marveling that God can heal a man who's crippled? Don't you remember that God? See what he's doing? It's that God, the God of the Bible. It's not a problem for him to do this. Not, not us. We don't have the power to do that. And he says, and why are you linking this healing to us as though we had the power to do it? We had no power to do this. Only God has the ability to heal. Now, wouldn't it be great? I mean, I, I would be great if these people on television would actually stop and say, you know what? Stop right now. This, these people here that are healed, God did this. I, I had nothing to do with it. I apologize that I have misrepresented God all these years. God did this. Wouldn't that be amazing? If only. But God still heals. I'd marvel if they did that. Notice verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. He, he is saying that the God we read about in the Bible did this through his servant, Jesus of Nazareth, the God of Abraham, the father of the Jew. His God did this. The God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers, the patriarchs. He's using a historical reference that this is the same God and that through his son healed this man. It wasn't them. They were just vessels. They were just vessels. But you denied. Interesting, the word denied there. You denied. Do you think Peter's familiar with that word? He denied, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Now, I don't think Peter for one minute is scolding. I don't think he's condescending in his tone towards the people. I think he's extending an incredible amount of grace because he understood what it was like to deny the Lord. This event was a few weeks removed from where Peter denied the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. His denial focused on not having known or being linked to Jesus. That was his denial. Their denial was a denial of rejection. They didn't want Jesus. And here Peter is stating that they reject, rejected the Holy One, the perfect one, the sinless one, and preferred a murderer instead. And here he is, like, to me, like an attorney, and he's indicting them. One thing after another. And Peter understood the uh, condemnation, didn't he? He felt it when he denied the Lord. 
And also he too knew what it was like to experience God's grace. He understood. But he wasn't letting them off the hook. And he's using all this to reason with the people. That they had a hand in his death. In other words, just because they didn't physically nail him to the cross, they were just as guilty because they consented to his death. And he's chipping away. He's chipping away. And no doubt many of these people are the same people Pilate addressed in whom they prefer to see released. Who do you want released? Do you want Barabbas, the murderer, or do you want Jesus? Give us Barabbas. This is the crowd. This is the same crowd. And this was still fresh in their memory banks. The crucifixion, again, was only a few weeks earlier. And they killed the prince of life. It's a pretty astounding statement. Now, you might find in your notes, in in your margins, it'll say the originator of life. The word means the author of life, the prince of life. We're told by John in chapter uh, uh, 1-1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of, of men. He is the prince of life. He is the author of life. The originator of life. He is the creator. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created that were in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. I can't help but to think, here's, here's the creator of the universe allowing himself to be nailed to a cross. He's allowing it to happen. Here's his creation. And he's holding them all together. He says all things, he consists of all things. He is holding everything together. And he's witnessing, and he's allowing his own creation to crucify him. In him all things consist. Now you may hear, have heard of this. It came out uh, a couple of days ago uh, in the Journal of Human Evolution. And I'll read to you this article. Uh, there was a massive study in genetics and has revealed that 90% of Earth's animals appeared at the same time. The latest research is debunking current knowledge about evolution. After studying 5 million genetic barcodes, scientists found 90% of species on Earth may have emerged around the same times as humans. Interesting, isn't that? At the same time. Landmark new research that involves analyzing millions of DNA barcodes. I don't know if you understand that. They are analyzing millions. If you read the article, it's, it's staggering. Millions of DNA barcodes um, has debunked much of what we know today about the evolution of species. In a massive genetic study, senior research associate at the Program for the Human uh, Environment at Rockefeller University Mark Stokel and University of Basel geneticist David Thaler discovered that virtually 90% of all animals on earth appeared at around the same time. More specifically, they found out that 9 out of 10 animal species on the planet came to being at the same time as, as humans did some 100 to 200,000 years ago. It's funny how they say 100 to 200,000, not millions and millions of years. It's funny how they're changing their tone. 
This conclusion is very surprising, says Thaler. And notice what he says. And I fought against it as hard as I could. What was he saying? He was trying to prove evolution is true, but the evidence suggested otherwise. Anything but creation. And here we have the author of life. The prince of life. Everything was made by him and everything is held together by him. Again, imagine the prince of life killed by the very thing he created. Honestly, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around this. Because if you're anything like me, I would have pulled a Thanos and people would have instantly started dissolving. <laughs> right? That, that would have been me. What do you mean nailing me to I create You're gone. You're gone. You know? But God is not like that, is he? He knows our condition. He knows our state. And he says before the foundations of the world, his plan of salvation was already considered before the world was even made. Revelation 13.8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, speaking about the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life, and the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So in the mind of God, this was already a done deal. Before the world was even created. He is the prince of life, and he says, and you killed him. You have committed the worst criminal act in all human history. You killed the prince of life. And also, it says here in verse 16, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem. Oh, I'm sorry. I jumped to the next chapter. Excuse me. Hey. (laughs) Verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Please note, they first marveled over the beggar's healing, and they assumed the healing was by the power they possessed. And now he says it's not none of those, of those things, but solely in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. It wasn't witchcraft. It wasn't magic. It wasn't hocus-pocus. It was in the name and faith in his name that reconstituted this man to walk. Great stuff, guys. He is saying, it's him. That, the guy that, that was killed, you guys, it's him. He's still alive. That's why this is still going on. He's not dead. I, I find it interesting that Peter makes his name and faith in his name a central issue. No works are involved, no human effort, but faith in his name and who he is. And so what do we mean when we say faith in his name? Well, let me give you an example. If, let's say Daryl here, he's having some financial hardship, right? And I say, you know, I I know someone that can help you out with with your money problems. John Rockefeller. What do you think he would would begin to think? John Rockefeller, man, that guy's powerful. He's got money. He's got wealth. Yeah, no problem, right? Now, Let's say I wanted to put together a basketball team. Man, I'm trying to pick guys out, but I can't find enough guys. And somebody comes up and says, you know, i got someone that can help you. Michael Jordan. Yeah, the guy can shoot. He can defend. He could, he, that guy's a killer. Yeah, I'll take him. But when I say Jesus Christ, what comes up in your mind? You see, that's the, that's the issue. The image is, here's a man of wealth. We, we know what he can do. 
We've got Michael Jordan. We know what he can do. But what can Jesus do? You see, there's a, there's a roadblock almost there. But he is the prince of life. He's the creator. He's all powerful. That's faith in his name, in his character and who he is. That is what Peter's trying to drive the point here. He says, this is the one. He's the one we look to. Faith in his name and his character. Notice verse 17, 18. He says, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. He's talking about fulfilled prophecy. Peter was illustrating how all these things were addressed by the prophets and now have been fulfilled. We see this, you know, we see the suffering Messiah in Psalm 16, 9, Psalm 22, 16, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, and many other passages that describe the suffering Messiah. Do you know how the Jews translate those passages when we read about the suffering Messiah? They say, that's the nation. That can't be a person. That's the nation. The nation is suffering. And so that's, they, they spiritualize it. They over-spiritualize it. They say, he's a nation. That's us. That's the way we suffer. Not so. It's a person. But Peter says here in verse 17 that he understands that they did this in ignorance. And no doubt they're being convicted. And we'll see many will surrender their lives to the Lord. In verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice the simplicity of the message. It's repentance. Peter didn't tell him, go clean up your act, or go flagellate yourselves in an act of contrition. He didn't soften the language, and that's always a temptation, isn't it? We always try to soften the language because we're afraid how they might respond, that we might offend them, or this we might trigger them, right? That's the word today. We trigger people and they get so combative. And so we soften the language. He doesn't. He doesn't say Jesus is one God among many. And he doesn't say it's Jesus plus X, Y, and Z. What's great about Peter's message is he's not asking for an emotional response. Repentance is settled in the heart and in the mind. The word repent there is metanao. It means to change one's mind. You're going down a specific way. You stop. You realize what's going on. And you make a U-turn and go the other direction. And here Peter refers to the scripture to persuade the people that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, God foretold all these things by the mouth of his prophets. And Jesus fulfilled many of the things the prophets had attested to. The proof was in the pudding. Just go look at the scripture. They all talk about him. If you're really honest, search the scripture. And he says that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you remember what it was like when you first accepted Christ as, as your savior? Do you remember what that was like? I do. I remember going home. Like it, it was a day like no other. I remember this. I feel like this huge burden had come off of me. And I'm thinking something happened. I don't exactly know. Some juju happened here, you know, but something was different and I knew it. I mean, I'm, I'm dumb, but not that dumb. I knew something was, was different. And I remember going home and waking up the next day 
I felt like there was a different filter that I was looking through. It was a different lens. Life was different. And I knew it. Things were different. And there was refreshment. Everything was fresh. And that is what the scripture is saying. Repent, be converted, and refreshment would come from the presence of God. Now imagine if you're there in the background, you could smell and see the smoke of the evening sacrifice, again, which conveyed the picture of sin being covered and consumed by the fire. And here Peter is calling for repentance. And upon repentance, one's sins would be blotted out. Interesting word here for blotted out. It's the Greek word elaxafeo. It means to erase. It means to wipe away. It means to obliterate. I like that. I think if you're a guy, you understand what I mean. <laughs> We're obliterating it. It's gone. God takes your sins and completely wipes them away. Never to be remembered anymore. Animal sacrifices couldn't do that. God knows we need to be refreshed because life has a way of weighing us down. And he promises refreshment as we walk with him and meditate on his word. But our human tendency is we forget. Because we fail to sit at his feet and then the problems overwhelm us. And we ask where God is. And he says, I'm right here. I'm ready to provide refreshment. I talked to a young man today. He came in. He says, you know, uh, you need to, um, can we talk to my wife? He says she wants to commit suicide. I know this guy for a long time. And you can't help but to think, where have you veered off? Is she reading? Is she praying? Is she in fellowship? Well, I can't exactly tell you those things. I said, well, when you fail to sit at the feet of Jesus, you will not be refreshed. Life will weigh on you and you will be consumed. It's just a matter of time. I can tell you. I, can hit, I, can, I know where it's at. If you're not reading, if you're not meditating... On God's word, you're not sitting at his feet. How can he refresh you? It's a choice. Verse 20. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. God has a plan, and that plan is currently in process. The word for restoration only occurs here, and it has the idea of putting something back together to its original state. In other words, it was broken, it fell apart, and it means to bring it all back together again. Now, I've heard some people think that this means that God's going to take people out of hell and restore them, and, you know, as if nothing ever happened. Where do you get that from? The scripture doesn't teach that. What he's saying here is between our Lord's ascension into heaven and his return, God is going to continue fulfilling all the things that he spoke through the prophets. You understand that? Everything he promised to the prophets that they spoke is continuing to take place today. God is on time. And if you want to know what time it is, look to Israel. God is continuing to fulfill his word before our very eyes. Are you looking for his return? Or are you saying, oh, you know what, Lord, not yet. You know, uh, uh, the closet's pretty full. I got a lot of junk in there. And I like the junk. You better settle that today. He is coming. He's coming soon. It's like the Titanic, right? 
I mean, the Titanic is going, but the iceberg is there. You're going to crash into the iceberg if you don't settle your accounts. It's unavoidable. It says, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. He's quoting out of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Again, listen, I've been a Christian 28 years. It's hard to believe. 28 years. And I know that this passage is Deuteronomy. He's quoting out of Deuteronomy. Now, if I know this, they know this. Okay? We have 27 more books than they did. So they had less literature to read. So I guarantee you they knew about Deuteronomy 18. As a matter of fact, when the religious rulers were trying to determine who John the Baptist was, they asked him in John chapter 121, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He goes, uh-uh, no, not him. Are you the prophet? They knew. And he answered, no. They knew. They knew the prophet was coming. So they knew God prophesied that he would send a prophet like Moses. And notice he says, And it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now imagine you're there and you're hearing this. Okay? And you're there. That may not sound so significant to us who are so far removed, you know, several hundred years later. But if if you're Jewish and your descendants were the prophets, this was certainly significant. You're related. They can, they can trace their genealogy. They're related. They understand. And then he says here, yes, and all the, all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you away from your iniquities. Again, he, he cites the sayings of the prophets to validate the uniqueness of Jesus. And I love what verse 26 says here. It says, to you first. To you first. Obviously, he's suggesting that this message was going to the Gentiles as well. But they were first. They had a special place of privilege. And notice, God sent him to bless you in turning every one of you away from your iniquities. God sent his son in order to not only save us from our sins, but to also give us the ability to live above our sins, to turn us away from our iniquities, because that is our sinful bent. He said, I, he sent his son to bless you. you. You're wayward in your ways. Your bent is evil. I'm sending my son not only to save you from your sins, but to turn you from your way. And that's what the language is implying here. And how important is that for us as believers, that he has given us a way that we can live above our sin. It drives me crazy when I hear people say, I can't do it. You know, I can't stop smoking. Can't stop drinking. Don't tell me that. That's not true. That is not true. God will give you the ability. The problem is, are you willing to obey? He's given us the ability. The non-believer can't say that. Because they don't have the Spirit of God living in them to live above their sin. But I have the Spirit of God to live above my sin. Do you know how I know? Because I'm convicted 
the moment I begin to think about it, I'm convicted. So I have a choice to make. What happens to these people? Well, later in the next chapter, we'll discover that 5,000 people repented at Peter's message. We thought 3,000 was pretty significant earlier in the church. 5,000 repent at Peter's message. You don't think they were cut to the heart? Do you know what was profound to me in this passage? God used their shame and guilt to draw them to the Son. They were there consenting to his death. And Peter is revealing who he was. And they were convicted to the heart. They repented. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, you better get to know him. He is speaking loud and clear. He wants to save you. He has sent his son to die for each and every one of your sins. It goes back to the worship song. One day your knee is going to bow. Well, I hope it's bowing to him if you know him as king rather than judge. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we again thank you for this passage. I pray, Lord, that we would take these truths, Lord. Lord, as we we share the gospel, that we don't soften the language, that we tell people about the blood, about the cross, about the hope we have of heaven. Because, Lord, those are the things that you have committed to us and that we be faithful, Lord, to share these things. And if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, or if you're wayward, I pray that tonight would be the night that you would submit yourself to the Lord. And you could do that anywhere. All you have to do is pray, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I accept Jesus as my Savior. Lord, I pray you fill me with your spirit. And Lord, help me live above my sin. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.